Hi, I'm Catherine, and I'm part of the digital learning team at Region 10 Education Service Center. We just ended our fifth season of Digital Learning Radio, and we concluded a series called Rose-Colored Glasses, where seven of our episodes were discussions about cultivating a culture of coaching. I've curated those episodes into a playlist, and if you missed an episode, we hope you'll go back and listen to them all. With our new team members and our interviews this semester, we know we have some new listeners and we didn't want to lose any momentum, so over the next few weeks, we'll be re-releasing some of our favorite episodes. I'm going to kick things off with one of my favorite experiences from last year, this interview with Gary Hirsch. Gary is a self-proclaimed collaboration junkie, and this interview was part of our deep dive into the collaborator standard of the ISTE standards for educators. In the DFW education world, Gary may be known for his creation of Joybots, and we discussed that, of course, but you also hear his ideas on the connections between improv and collaboration. He also notes the importance of not being the expert in the room, and he thought our term sage on the stage was very appropriate. We'll repost the resources mentioned, and we've also started a collaborative document, so if you've found ways to use Joybots in education, please share on this sheet. Last year at this time, Albert Thomas was on our team, so in this conversation, you'll hear Ashley, Albert, and me in the discussion with Gary. Thanks for listening and sharing, and enjoy today's replay. And everything that I do, I just find ways to do it with other people so that um, it's better. In my experience, when you make something with other people, when you collaborate, um, you get a better result. That is our guest on today's show, creator of BotJoy and co-founder of On Your Feet, Gary Hirsch. Gary Hirsch is an artist, speaker, illustrator, facilitator, and performer. He co-founded a company called On Your Feet, which trains businesses to innovate through improvisation. We discovered Gary's work this summer because of one of his passion projects, Joybots, which are small hand-painted robots created to make the world a better place. I actually shared this idea on a podcast episode last summer, and I know a lot of educators around the Dallas area and Iowa created and shared bots, but we invited Gary here for an additional reason. Today's episode is a deep dive into the ISTE Collaborator Standard, so you may be wondering, how will an artist from Portland contribute to this conversation? Well, Gary also has a TEDx talk where he calls himself a collaboration junkie, and he shares practices to make collaboration more joyful, inspiring, and surprising. So that is why he is a perfect match for today's conversation. Once we started digging into his work, we discovered these ideas he shares are universal. Gary, we are so honored to have you join us on this episode, and we're ready to learn from you. Awesome. Thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Well, we just cannot thank you enough for your time. So the first thing we really want to know, though, is what is a collaboration junkie and how do you become one? Right. Uh, it's probably not like the best use of the, the term, but um, it, the, the truth is, is that the way that I've ended up structuring the way that I work and the way that I live is to find ways to collaborate as much as I can with anyone that I can. And what I find is that if I go through a day that I haven't made something with someone else or at least collaborating on an idea with someone else, um, I feel a little bit at a loss. So I guess I use that word uh, junkie in the sense that I have to keep doing it to feel good um, about about my life and um, and about my work. So 
it's just something that I have built into my process. Um, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to be able to, I work for myself. Um, I run a business with 10 other people. Uh, as you said, I'm a visual artist and I'm a father, um, a, a dog lover uh, and everything that I do, I just find ways to do it with other people so that um, it's better. In my experience, when you make something with other people, when you collaborate, um, you get a better result. It's just always better with other people involved. So the real question is, is I do believe two heads are better than one, but I do believe it under the right conditions. And so what I'm really curious about are what are the conditions, the behaviors it takes to collaborate at a sort of high level where everybody come, comes out the other side feeling great. And that's kind of what I do with my work. Well, and that just sounds perfect and exactly what we would love to hear more about. And that sure. kind of leads leads into this question that I wanted to um, ask you. And in education, probably in business world too, there's a lot of times where we're, we're required, where forced collaboration is required, where it's not necessarily all, all parties are gung-ho. And that may be with teachers on grade level meetings. That may be with students working on a project with, together. So... Any advice that you have for improving collaboration with groups that haven't necessarily decided that that's what they are wanting to do? <laughs> Great question. And I have, have a little bit of experience with what you're describing. My uh, master's degree actually is, an, is as an art teacher. So I was trained to get into a classroom and use this work. Uh, I, I still do use this work as a teacher. It's just not in a classroom. Um, but your question, which is what do you do with sort of with the idea of reluctant collaboration? Yes. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Um, and here's a couple things that I've, I have noticed. And some of these things I'm gonna talk about come from a pretty specific art form that I'm deeply involved with. And this is the art of improvisation. So when I'm not painting, I'm improvising and I'm using improv in, uh, in settings where I'm full of reluctant people. So I go into large engineering firms with engineers who all they wanna be doing is coding and the last thing they want to be doing is playing around with improv. So talk about reluctant. Uh, I'm no <laughs> Obviously a different population than you're describing. But here's the thing. I think in some ways, collaboration, you can talk about it all you want. And people's eyes, first of all, the word itself can either make people excited or make their eyes glaze over. It's what I would call a, it's a fat word, meaning it has lots of different meanings to different people. So when you say collaboration, Ashley, you may have something very specific in mind. When I say it, I may have it too, but we're both using the same language. Right. And already that's a problem because you're coming with a whole set of assumptions um, and I am too. So let's say, for example, just use each other as an example and say we might be reluctant collaborators. Um, in my instance, I might be coming to this thing going, like, oh, right, collaboration, oh my gosh, in my work, that is something that is incredibly fun. It's uplifting. I get new ideas. Everyone leaves smiling. In your reality, potentially, it's like, oh, that's just a big pain. Um, that means more process for me. Um, I can do this easier on my own. So I think very the very first thing is transparency on your assumptions. So, and, and we'll do a couple of things. One thing is I'll invite people who are facilitating collaboration to find a way to get that out on the table. So for example, if I'm facilitating a piece of collaboration, I will pre-interview many of the people that are showing up ahead of time. And I will say, okay, what's working? What don't you like? You get their collaboration take. And then at the beginning of a meeting, it's pretty easy to say, especially as someone who's facilitating it, here's what I know about you when it comes to collaboration. You don't just sort of out anybody around their opinion. You just say, some of you think this is really exciting. Some of you think this is incredible pain. Uh, some of you have had really bad experiences. Like just being transparent about the assumptions is already helpful. 
because what people can't see that you're doing right now, Ashley, but I can because we're on video, <laughs> is you're nodding your head. And when you when you get transparent, when people see their own ideas out on the table first, they do that. They go, yes, you understand me. Right. So the more that I think that's just the first that may seem super obvious, but people don't do it. The other thing is um, uh, value. What is the value of collaborating? I'm a big fan of this idea of show, don't tell. And so if you get people together in a room to make something or to collaborate, um, how can you show them the value of the next two and a half hours they're about to spend before they even start? Is there a way to do that? Is there a way to show the result of a collaboration that has happened in the past that has led to something of value? Mm -hmm. Is there a way to leverage what it is the people in the room want, right? So if you're coming in to solve a problem, so, and again, you and I are problem solving together, it would be great that you know that I know what you want and vice versa. Right. Can you get the value stated of collaboration through something that you can show versus just talk about? I don't know if that makes sense. But yes, that's, that's, a, that's a really, really good point. And so- a few, few thoughts to begin with. Yeah, and so kind of, taking that to the next, to, to a different level or different take on collaboration, what advice would you give if you are working on a team that's functioning at fairly high levels? How can you improve collaboration or spark creativity to kind of take that to the next level? Yeah. Well, so again, I think those are two potentially different things, but again, words are slippery, right? Collaboration, innovation, um, uh, sort of the same thing. Maybe not. It just, it kind of depends on where you are. Um, but if you've got a high functioning team already, then, um, I, I like to play with that a little bit. And I think playing kind of is the operative word. If you want to get even, again, what's your goal? So if, you, if you're collaborating, for what purpose? If it is for new ideas, for example, mm -hmm. and you guys are doing like, we're doing pretty great. This feels good. I'm excited to show up. I mean, one, one sort of litmus test on is a team collaborating well is, is there, like, first of all, your own sort of personal body check, which is, do I want to be here right now? Like, how excited <laughs> am I about showing up yeah. to this? That may be in its own self a good way to sort of, sort of give you the barometer because mm -hmm. I think just again sorry I, I can keep blabbing you just direct me but the idea of we're functioning well you should double check that right. because some people may believe that and some people may not I think there's still some things you can do to make it better um, one is uh, are you playing with the things you take seriously I mean play in any collaborative endeavor especially in sort of an idea idea generation or innovation context will get you new stuff so there's a, we often will get asked as an on your feet, which is a business consultancy to come in and facilitate new ideas for something. It could be for a process, it could be for a product. Um, and there's a number of things we'll, we'll try to do to make that better. Uh, play with the things you take seriously, ask questions you haven't asked before, right? So what are the questions like, great, what would your grandmother say about this? Well, we, why would we <laughs> care? Because it might be a new perspective. Right. Um, uh, use constraints, right? So if you, if, if, uh, you know, I get this all the time some, um, as a constraint, which you'll probably laugh at after talking with me for a few minutes, which is my my team here, when they want me to be more creative, they will say six words or less, Gary, <laughs> which really helps. And it's because it's hard. It's like, oh, whoa. So using a constraint of some kind can get you to a different level. Yes. Um, and there's a lot of that comes from this improv work because that's what improvisers are doing on stage. Um so there's a few thoughts. That's fantastic. Awesome. So the um, kind of one of the ideas and thoughts that we love that you share is the idea of letting go. And we know that oftentimes in education and in the business world that that is a very difficult thing to do, especially being 
in an environment where people are very educated or trained in a particular discipline, and they definitely feel like they are, the term that we use in education often is the sage on stage, and they are the the keeper of all knowledge. And so um, could you share a little bit on any suggestions of getting to that point of being able to let go? Um, um, yeah, that's a great, great question. And man, that is such a universal um I guess reality. Mm -hmm. I, I love sage on stage, by the way. That's mm -hmm. a great way of putting it. Um, I do a lot of work in these different business contexts. So, for example, in an ad agency, this I always thought this was really weird. When I first started doing work in the advertising world, I found out very early that there was a whole department that was called the creatives, <laughs> which is really hard for anybody else who's not in that department, especially mm -hmm. if they want, right? So that's a whole nother, this exists everywhere. I see people, um, again, people can't see me, but this idea of having an idea and holding it close to your chest because it's yours and you mm -hmm. self-identify with it yes. and you sort of go as wrapped up in it. I see that everywhere. So it's, it's not surprising that it happens in education as well. Um, and here's what I think. I, first of all, I think expertise is massively overrated. <laughs> I love it. I can, really can you, can really you say do. that like, one more time? I, I mean, I'm probably people are like hanging up now. I mean, <laughs> Sort of I'd be surprised. I think some people would definitely rewind that part. <laughs> yeah, I do. I think it's totally overrated because in this day and age, if I really need an answer for something, I can find it almost anywhere. I don't think we should be experts. I think we should be resources. I think if we don't have the answer to something, that is fine. I have watched people be, I, I do a lot of presentation skills training. I train people to get up on stage, the stage, the sage, mm -hmm. the stage is on. No, the sage, we get it. Anyway, that place that you just described. <laughs> And I do a lot of training there. And what people, what paralyzes people when they present in front of an audience is they think they have to be an expert. And they are absolutely uh, terrified by a question or the idea of a question that they can't answer. And I think that, first of all, is just it's incredibly inhibiting and you can't do your best work. So how do you get through that? And I think one coaching that I give often is um, you don't have to be an expert. You do not have to have the answer. You have to have people find it. If you can help them, if you can, and this is about serving your audience instead of serving yourself. If you're presenting and you have to look great and have all the answers, you're already focused on yourself too much. And that's going to freak you out because you're just, that's where you are. But you shouldn't be focused on yourself. You should be focusing on your audience. So if what your audience needs, you can't provide in the moment, just find a way to provide it eventually. And you're serving them, which means you don't have to be an expert anymore. I mean, I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. So, so I, I, I didn't even answer your question about letting go. I think that's just the piece on expertise. Just in terms of letting go, um, that's something you just have to try because there's such huge value. This is about collaboration. You cannot collaborate with someone else if they are holding on to their idea and not sharing it. I mean, it's just that simple. If I don't know what you have in your head because it's too precious and if you share it, you're scared someone's going to steal it or then it'll be out in the world and you can't control it, then you and I can't collaborate at all. So it's a prerequisite for getting in the room and working with other people is to be able to voice your ideas. And then once you let go of them in some way, you, this is the even harder part. You have to be available to be changed by what other people say or do with your ideas. And again, this comes from improvisation. If you really, again, you could just stop this interview now and just say, if you really want to be a great collaborator, you should uh, at least play with improv because you're forced to do that stuff in real time. It's not... It's not like a cerebral exercise. You are doing it. Right. You're letting go of an idea and people are building on it. So it is a really great um, little Petri dish to, to explore this stuff. 
Well, we were just talking about how, why hasn't this idea been shared more? And we know your company has been around for 20 years and you've been doing this for so long. But for us, this was completely foreign to us, the idea yeah. about improv for collaboration. So love that. And then let me rewind a bit for the part where you're, the experts, we are um, tech integration specialists. We provide PD for people who are sometimes very tech timid and they're afraid to click and try anything new. And so uh, we need to really direct them to what you're saying here about letting go and it's okay not to be an expert. Totally. And, and, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Gary. No, I was, I was going to say totally four more times. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one of the things that we definitely believe in and we preach is that moving from the sage onto the stage and teacher being a facilitator, not the yeah. keeper and deliverer of the knowledge, but helping students discover and be self-guided learners. So that really just resonates with what yeah. you um, are saying. This, you take an, I take that exact same thought um, and I throw that into a corporate setting. So I... Do, I do collaboration training. I get teams together and they get trained to collaborate better. Um, the only way they can do that is to learn through doing. The only way they can do that is for me not to tell them what I think is to suggest that they try this. Now I have structures and I have a toolkit that's enormous for how to have people find, have their own self-discovery. But you, I'm, basically I don't see I can teach anything by telling people things. Yeah. So you guys are doing Sorry. We're just smiling and looking at each other because that is our whole mission is like make teaching more experiential. And we want to make our classrooms a place where it's active and the students are learning. And again, we're facilitators of those learning experiences. So we knew we were talking to the right person. Yeah, talking <laughs> same language. It's, it's, you're right, though. It is really it's amazing and fascinating to, to find the same methodologies and the same language being used in very different settings except the objectives are pretty much the same, even though they're different settings, right? The objectives are about transformation. The, direct, the objectives are about change and positive, positive change. It's like through learning something, skill, knowledge, same thing that happens in, in my context as well. So, um, but fun to learn, but not too surprising that the, the methodology is the same. Right, right. right. Well, from all of the reading, um, I understand that you're more of a in real life kind of guy, but a lot of the work we do is virtual collaboration. And we may be working with a teacher in a tiny district and the teacher is the math department for grades nine through 12. Or we are trying to teach students some cultural competencies and we want them to connect with the school in Australia or um, different cultures. And so do you have any advice for facilitating virtual collaboration? Mm, yeah, well, thank you. Um, it's true. That's not what my sandbox for the most part. Um, and but, but I do think there's things that are absolutely applicable from live into, into virtual um, collaboration. And I think I'll take you to the improv stage again, because I think that's the place where it, there's some language that could be really helpful. So in improvisation, if, if people haven't experienced it or even know what it is, Essentially, it's just creating stories, theater, like a real, like a play, except you have no script and you have no plan. Um, sometimes you have no talent. There's, that's not even a requirement. <laughs> just, uh, and, and so what, what improvisers do, especially when they're being trained in the very beginning, is they view everything that happens on stage. They have a word for that. Everything that happens on stage is what they call an offer. O-F-F-E-R. So everything is an offer. Meaning if you and I are on stage together, Catherine, and you come out 
um, and you by accident trip on your shoelace, I don't view that as a problem or a mistake or something that's embarrassing. I simply go, oh, look, that's something I can take and use. So an offer is anything that happens in that environment that the other person can take and use. So I might say something like, well, um, I see you've tripped over your shoelaces. That's why I've brought you this magic shoelace that self-ties every time it comes undone. And suddenly we're in a scene about a magic shoelace. Um, and the same thing, you can think about this language when it comes to sort of virtual work or virtual collaboration. When you're working live with someone, the offers that are in play are multiple. They're the lang there's the words that they're using. There's also their, the, actually their facial features, like their physicality is an offer, right? When you're talking to somebody and um, like their arms are crossed and their brow is furrowed, um, that is an offer. Even if what's coming out of their mouth is like, I'm having a lot of fun now. You're like, yeah, really? <laughs> It, that's, there's more offers in play. What happens in a virtual context is that your offers are reduced. And we forget sometimes they are. Because, so for example, if you're doing this as a phone, phone back and forth, you, the visual offers are gone. Um, so sometimes what I do when I'm working virtually is I ask people to make some of that stuff transparent. So I will say things like, you can't see me now. Um, but my dogs, I am, you know this before we started this, I've got my two dogs with me right here. Um, sometimes I will say something, you can't see me right now, but my dogs can't stop licking my feet. So you might hear a bit of a giggle in my voice, which is a totally helpful thing to say, because without that, they're like, why is this person laughing at what I'm doing? Right. Uh, we make a lot of assumptions when we work virtually because we fill in the information we can't see. We fill in like, oh, you know, you've, you've, we've all done this, right, where you've asked somebody a question and they haven't answered on the phone. And you're like, you suddenly you jump up, we call the ladder of inference. You make all these judgments about these people. Like they're not even paying attention. They're on the computer and they probably even left the conversation. And then you kind of go, oh, sorry, I totally forgot to undo the mute button. I've been talking for three minutes. So, so I think, you know, I've said a lot of things here, but I think potentially the thing to think about when you do it is A, everything's an offer. So if you don't know what the offers are because you don't have access to them through a virtual context, you should ask and, um, and don't, just zip up the ladder and, and assume the worst. Assume best intent always. Yeah. Somebody until you're proven otherwise. Great advice. And we keep hearing transparency as part of the whole collaboration piece. Yeah. And, and so I think that's a, one of the biggest takeaways that we need to get from this conversation. Well, and I thought just occurred to me, um, Gary, we just started an online book study. And it's the first time we're doing it in this container specifically. And I think it would have been helpful, or it still can be helpful, to ask participants, what do you expect to get out of it? How, how do you want to work this to make it right for the way you learn? And just kind of touch base with them as just yeah. kind of a baseline. I think here's, the, here's potentially, I think you may have hit on something that's a super simple, but we so forget, especially again, as people that teach or if we're an expert or we live in a content, we're the content experts sometimes. I think what we forget to do is um, literally, A, ask your audience what they need and want. It's a really simple idea, but we don't do it because we're like, okay, this next, I'm gonna make this up, this next conversation is about this book and I wanna make sure I'm prepared. So you read the book like crazy, you come up with all your notes and you just become this huge content expert, but you forget that there's an audience that has to be involved with this content. So the idea of actually just taking a moment and focusing on the needs and issues of your audience by asking them what they need is a super simple and pretty um, obvious, but good idea. And the other thing that I was going to think that I think of is I, I kind of don't even want to like walk out of the house without an objective. Like you, if you're going to have a book club, for example, mm -hmm. you should get head nods around the why you're doing this. Um, 
what what do you want people to walk out with? And I like saying that versus objectives and desired outcomes. I literally like that language. I like the language, which is um, um, here's what we're going to walk out with. Or can we agree on what we're going to walk out with from here? And it could be like um, a new ability to understand text we haven't read before or three new ideas, whatever it is. Um, if you don't have your objectives clear, clear on anything before you start, then uh, you just spin out and those things can bring you back. So I think those might be two things to think about. Awesome. Well, we're all huge fans of Simon Sinek. So start with why has to be the <laughs> number one thing. So Awesome. So one of the questions that we are starting to ask um, this season of our podcast um, is asking all of the people that we have come in for interviews. And we'd like to ask you that same question, which is, do you have a favorite failure? Oh, see, I, you prompted me on this, too. I was like, <laughs> how much time you got? I mean, <laughs> well, that's we love hearing yeah. um, the realness. Well, so go, that, that would be great. Way back in time. But I, and I thought I should do that. But then I was like, I just had one. So why don't I just take like the most recent? Is that sure. okay? <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. So um, I have been working on a book uh, for, gosh, you know, on and off for the last six years. And one of the problems with, if you're writing a book, there's many problems. Um, one of the problems is, is if you're not exactly sure what you're writing about, you're just going to keep writing and writing and writing and writing. And so that's what's happened with this book. Like, you know, we're talking about collaboration today. Absolutely. Out of the blocks, this thing was going to be like lessons from improv and art about collaboration. And then it moved. It started to just morph and it had three or four different phases. And, and in the very last phase, I was really I, this is it. I was I nailed it. I'm sure of it. And I spent, you know, a year, not total, but it felt like it um, writing this thing. And the whole book was about worry. So it moved from being about collaboration to being about worry and tips for helping people worry less. And I just felt like in this day and age, it's just kind of what the world needs. Wow. But yeah, it was, it was exciting. And um, it still is exciting. However, um, I, again, this is kind of gets back to what we we're talking about. I was, I wrote it sort of just, I could put my head down and just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then I finally lifted my head up and I and head up and I shared it, finally collaborated because I wasn't, I was just writing. And I finally shared it with people that I, I dearly respect uh, their opinion and their thought, and they know me very, very, very well. It's been my work colleagues and, and other folks I've collaborated with for years. And they read this book, and this is really recent. So this is my, this is my. I mean, I'm like, this is done. I have nailed it. It's over. Just read it so you guys know what's happening. So I'm going to publisher, and uh, they read it. This is like three weeks ago, and to the person, they were like, you cannot publish this. Cannot <laughs> <laughs> put this out in the world. And I was like, why? Like I thought, like it's a dangerous thing because it's not you. They said, you, you, yes, yourself, potentially your own self-identity is that you worry a lot, but actually you're the opposite. You're a joy person. You're not a worry person. And if you wrote the same book, which is about how to bring more joy to the world instead of how to worry less, maybe the same idea, it's going to be a better book and it's going to be more authentic to you. Anyway, so long story short, um, is it a failure? May it feels a little bit like it did at the moment. I was like, that's it. That's fine. I literally took Aww. one of those things and I just put it in the shredder. But I, you know, I've brought myself back out. I think the whole point is, is that, um, you know, what is failure? Sometimes it's just a feeling. And I really felt like a failure. But now I'm thrilled that I failed there because I think it's a much better book. Yeah. Power of awesome. feedback, too. Power of feedback. So there you go. There's an example. Well, speaking of joy and collaboration, you know, we just have to throw in the joy bots idea for just a second. Problem, too, by the way. Um, I can't see it. 
Oh, yes, yeah, awesome. the, the clock. Um, but the whole idea, and you're on your BotJoy site, is steal this idea. So that shows that you are so willing to let others collaborate with you. And so if anyone does not know about your BotJoy project, would you uh, share a little bit about that? I'd love to. Thank you. Thanks for that. And again, it's been amazing to watch how this thing has taken on. And again, you educators... Uh, is, is just watching you guys run with this. It's just been thrilling. It's why I do it. Um, so it's caught on like wildfire. But um, just, yeah, I'll try to summarize it quickly. Um, I created a notebook back in 2010 that had a little doodle in it. And the little doodle said it had a little robot, it had a big robot in it and it, a small child in it. And the robot um, was standing next to the child. And the caption said, imagine that you went through your entire day being followed by a giant invisible robot that just gave you outrageous compliments and told you how wonderful you were. And then the robot captioned, the robot saying like a little uh, uh, vocal bubble, it's saying, nice pants. Uh, <laughs> so that's how this all started because I gave this notebook with this doodle in it to people. And weirdly enough, people came back to me saying, you cannot believe what my robot told me today. Like people took it to heart and suddenly their robot was saying things like, you did really great in that meeting and you're such a nice guy. And all, and so, so this whole idea that you could sort of create an imaginary character that would just like you, I just really fell in love with because it's really just you doing it to yourself. <laughs> right. So I was like, well, let's make the robot. So I, I found that the back of dominoes is this wonderful tactile surface to be able to draw on. So I, I gave away real robots and the same thing happened. I, I made these joy bots and People were like, it, it's bringing me joy. And I was like, well, what other kind of bots could I make? So I made brave bots that I donated to uh, the children's hospitals here right. in Portland, Randall and Dornbecker. And that just became its own thing because I gave them something like at the beginning, like 400 robots. They were, as kids were admitted to the hospital, they got a little brave bot. And then all these stories kept coming back to me about how kids weren't able to do anything at the hospital unless they had their brave bot with them because it helped them feel brave. Like, they have to get injections, which are totally scary, or they have to go through these scary machines. It's like, nope, not without my brave bot. And I thought, oh, wow, these things are much more powerful than I understand. And I still believe that today. I don't know how and why they work, but they do. And so the idea that I can hold onto a piece of plastic that somebody drew on and feel better and feel courage or feel joy or feel love, I just, I cannot believe how cool that is. And so what happened was, is hospitals found out about this children's hospitals in particular and i got hit up like to donate thousands I was, that i was the bottleneck i was like I, these things need to be out in the world they seem to be working they seem to be wonderful i'm one human being this is nuts if, if you wait for me it'll never happen and so i put up this video on bot joy which was simply just steal this idea let me show you how to do it let me get, make it as easy for you as possible because there needs to be more of these things out in the world Joy bots, love bots, brave bots, hope bots, cloning bots. Um, I even made a blame bot so you can blame it for anything that goes wrong. And <laughs> so that's the, that's the story behind it. And now, like I say, thousands of people are making them. I still do. I, I just finished all my 49th thousandth robot. I numbered wow. them. Yeah. Wow. So I'm up to like 49,000. I have 39,964. Um, so fair enough. Um, so that's the kind of story behind them. And I really don't know what's going to happen with them. Like, like I say, they are moving through the world. So you guys, there's educators that are making them. There's small groups that are making them. It's happening in Texas and Iowa and California and over in Europe. Um, and that's exactly what I wanted to have happen. I wanted the sort of the collaboration cascade or 
bad pun domino effect right. uh, continue. And so who knows? Um, it's just wonderful to sit back and watch it happen. Awesome. Well, Ashley's sharing it um, on Saturday, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to um, attend a girl, all girls high school robotics competition, a program, wow. excuse me, programming competition. And I'm going to set up a little table there and uh, introduce bots to them. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. Digital yeah. Divas. Digital Divas is the program, yes. Digital Divas. Not I love there. it. That's fantastic. It's great. Okay. I can't no, wait to see it. You've shared quite a bit, um, and this is a little bit extra, but can you share a little bit about, um, you've mentioned several times about the importance of taking risk and how important that is. Can you share a little bit more about that? Sure. And again, I, I, I apologize I keep going back to the same place, but um, again, as an improviser, when I get up on stage, that is like some people's worst nightmare. You're like on stage without a script, people are looking at you and they're expectant about something. They want to have a good time or they want to laugh. Um, So for some people, that's too big of a risk at all. They would never, ever do that. And my thought about that is great, don't, because we know where our risk line is. But there's some people that think about that idea and they go like, huh, I wonder. And as soon as you're in that territory, then your risk line is like, you can, there it is. And I wonder if what happened if I pushed it a little bit. And so I think risk is relative, I guess, is one way to, to think about mm-hmm. it. I think there's good risk and bad risk, right? And we all know kind of a bad risk would be just running out into the middle of the street, bad risk. But I'm a big fan of a quote from a guy named Keith Johnstone. And if you're interested in this improv work and you want to dive into it, he is an amazing uh, thought leader in this work. And he's written two books. One's called Impro and one called um, Impro for Storytellers. But here's a quote from him, which I, I think about a lot. He says, there are those that prefer to say yes, and there are those that prefer to say no. Those that say yes are rewarded by the adventures they have. Those that say no are rewarded, same word, by the safety they attain. And then he goes on to say there's far more uh, no-sayers in the world than yes-sayers. So again, if you think about that, what he's saying is, is that taking a risk can lead to adventure. In his idea, yes. And this is where this idea of yes and comes from the world of improv, kind of has been permeating all sorts of different um, educational culture and, and creative culture. That's where that kind of comes from, which is say yes, you get to new things. That's an adventure. You say no, you stay safe, which by the way, is also valuable. And I'm a big fan of that because there's times to say yes, but man, there's totally times to stay the same. Saying yes gives you change and newness. Saying no keeps things the status quo and the same. And by the way, there's totally appropriate times to do that. There are rewards for both. So I think about that a lot. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so time to kind of wrap it up. You've already given us so much of your time. Um, but if someone wants to learn more about you and your work and your company and your joy, then what's the best way for them to find you? Here's what I would love to say. Just call me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm much more interested in that than like go to a website, but um, you probably will have a hard time reaching me. So I won't say that. Uh, so you can, yes. Um, obviously, um, like I said, my world is divided right now into sort of two entities. One is this organization, this company, company called On Your Feet, um, which is where you can see an OYF.com. So it's, we got in early on the URL. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. So we were like, 
you want to sell that? I was like, well, no. But then they tell me how much they want to buy a three-letter URL. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Wow. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, so OYF.com is where you can learn more about the improv and business work. And then uh, BotJoy uh, is where you can learn more about the collaborative art project. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to share that we forgot to ask about or? Um... You guys did a very thorough job of, of mining my experience. I totally <laughs> thank you. No, only that I want to say just massive, deep appreciation for anybody who is helping to put more bots out into the world. It is, um, it's, it's a labor of love. And when you do it, you don't know how you're helping because you don't, you just make them and they, they leave, right? You give them to somebody, sometimes, you know, um, but they they have made such a difference in people's lives and so much more than I, I even know. And so if folks are still doing it and still making it, I just want to thank them for it. Okay. Well, we definitely thank you for taking the opportunity to step out there and share it with the world. So thank you for doing that. Okay. Well, that wraps it up for today's episode. So thanks again, Gary. We so appreciate your time and expertise and all of this fantastic information about collaboration. It is, like I said, universal. It's so applicable to the education world. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks for your time as well.